0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be in verses 11 through 16 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. Today we'll talk a good bit, although not exclusively, we'll talk a good bit about the idea of private prayer. The importance of private prayer. This idea of individually communing with God. We've been, of course, in this series called Enjoying Jesus Through Habits of Grace. And the idea that we cannot twist God's arm to give us grace, but that we can place ourselves and should place ourselves and indeed will place ourselves if we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. We'll place ourselves next to streams of grace where God has... Promised that his grace flows more consistently and more commonly in those places. Just like Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, right? Climbed up in a sycamore tree. He couldn't twist God, Jesus walking by to give him grace or a blessing, but he could place himself close to the Savior. And so that's the idea that we're talking about in this series. Private prayer is an important test of whether we are real. To quote David Mathis, he says, This private prayer cuts through the fog and confusion and helps to show that our relationship with God is authentic or not. The question is, I I, end quote there, the question is this, in the depth of your heart, so think about just for a second here, in the depth of your heart to the best of your ability, when it's just you and your mind, you and what's going on inside, where do you run to? Now, I'm going to give a, a description uh, of this, but where do you run to? When the, Particularly when the struggle with sin is real, in those mundane, spontaneous moments what does that conversation look like in your head? So when you think about private prayer, the question is, is in that kind of moment, what does that look like? A private prayer includes both the idea of scheduled, intimate time where I'm going to speak to God, but private prayer also includes those moments that aren't so scheduled but are more spontaneous. What's that look like to commune with God? What's it look like for you in those more mundane, spontaneous moments? What does the conversation look like in your head? Is it one of intimate dependence on God? A genuine conversation with Him? Or is it one of self-dependence, arrogance, running to self, or to other things? Timothy Keller said this, the infallible test of spiritual integrity, Jesus says, is your private prayer life. Many people will pray when they are required by culture or social expectations, or perhaps by the anxiety caused by troubling circumstances. Those who have a genuinely lived relationship with God as Father, however, will inwardly want to pray and therefore will pray even though nothing on the outside is pressing them to do so. They pursue it even during times of spiritual dryness when there is no social or experiential payoff. End quote. Prayer is where we speak back to God in response to His Word to us. And as a result, we experience what it means to enjoy Him as an end in itself. Not just prayer as a means to our petitions. Prayer is not just a means of getting what we want. But the ultimate goal in prayer is to have God Himself. Listen, if your prayers are not a response to His voice in His Word then all you're doing is having a conversation with yourself, trying to convince yourself that you can obtain what you want. And that maybe God can help you get it. And I'm afraid that much of our prayers look that way. It's not us relating to God on the basis of what He has said and what He has said about Himself. It's us being driven by what we most want in this moment, good or bad. And it's really more of us trying to psych ourselves up or convince ourselves that we can go get it instead of seeing all circumstances as an opportunity and as a goal to push us towards God in prayer. Instead, private prayer life as we've talked about is part of the heartbeat of a christian responding to what god has said in talking back to him that this is prayer let's read hebrews 4 verse 11 through 16 let us therefore now we're going to talk a little bit about what's before the therefore but for now let us therefore strive to enter that rest So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." Father, may we see Your Word as not just words on a page, but as something that's powerful and active that is doing this very thing right now. It is is piercing our hearts. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing and dividing the soul and the spirit. It's discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts right now. We cannot hide any of it from You. We are as naked and exposed before Your eyes as we were the day we were born. And may we see Your Word and this as a grace to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name, Amen. This is one of those passages that if you rush too quick to the end, you lose the Intensity of, first of all, the beginning, but you lose the intensity of the ending of it too if we rush too quickly to the end. So uh, if you feel uncomfortable for the next uh, 30 minutes, that's good. You should. The world is a restless place. The world that you and I live in is a restless place. <clears throat> Before you get to this verse in 11, I want to summarize very quickly, but before you get to the verse, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter the rest. I'm going to explain a little bit of what happened in the, the 10 verses ahead of this, which is much of the beginning parts of the Old Testament. But here, what you have is he's talking about the Israelites striving to enter the rest of God. What happens, and I can't recount all of the history of Israel by any straight, even from a big picture standpoint, but if you bear with me, we'll start with the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. And God delivers them from slavery in Egypt, as you know, through the Passover lamb and such, and and now they begin to journey, and they journey through, and they get to the Red Sea, and and, and the Egyptians are on their heels, and what's going to happen? And God splits the Red Sea, and they move on through the Red Sea. Then then they move into the wilderness, and they move on towards Mount Sinai, where the law is given, where God says, you are going to be my people, and here's how you will be my, here's what it will look like to be my people, and God in gracious kindness acts. He speaks to his people saying this is what it looks like for you to be my people at Mount Sinai. And then they move on from Mount Sinai and moving through the wilderness they come. And, and, and the whole picture is this idea of entering into God's rest. And it's, it's visualized or it's, it's put in kind of very tangible form with the idea of entering into the land of Canaan. That this will be your land, you will be my people, this will be your land, and you will enter this. And when you enter into this land, you will enter into rest. This, this idea of laboring and this idea of, of struggling, all this, this physical toil of the Israelites is going to be relieved as they enter into this land of rest. God provides as they're on their way there God provides generously for them in the wilderness as as they make their way to the promised land again this land is really a physical representation of a much greater reality that is to come more of that in a second but what happens God is going to give this place to them having give this place to them having sovereignly rescued them from bondage so they were in slavery then they go through the Red Sea, like, like Passover, the lamb dies on their behalf, they're set free. They go through the Red Sea, which is like a foreshadow like a, a baptism picture, going through the Red Sea, going through the wilderness. God speaks to his people. They come to the land of Canaan. You're going to enter my rest now. And they say, No, it's too dangerous. Won't do it. What's God do at that point? They these rebellious people are sent back into the wilderness. They're at the edge of God's rest in the plot line. And he says, go into the wilderness, right? And they spend years and years and years, decades even. Why? Because this wicked, rebellious, particularly unbelieving generation, God sends to the wilderness to die off because they are not allowed to enter into God's rest. So again, the picture here is so he rescues them from bondage, baptizes them through the Red Sea, teaches them how to live in relationship with him, and brings them to the kingdom of rest. But they disobey, and again, a whole generation dies off. Once that generation dies off, now the people of God enter into the land of Canaan. Now fast forward about two or three centuries of living in the land and the psalmist writes these words in psalm 95 verse 7 through 11 for he is our god and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as at meribah as on the day of massah in the wilderness when the fathers put me when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Right. So this is, this is the picture here. Now they're in the land of rest. But listen to what David... Or, The psalmist is saying, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, Remember, this is written a couple hundred years at least into being in the land of rest. And yet the people are exhorted... To not live in a way that the wilderness generation lived so as to result in losing this rest. I think what's happening here is the psalmist, and clearly the, the author of Hebrews is telling us something very similar, that the psalmist clearly believes that there is a future rest to be had that could be lost by rebellion and unbelief. That even this generation, these, these people that had entered into this physical land of rest, there's a chance that they could lose a greater reality of rest if they were to rebel. Otherwise, what's the, the point of this rest? That we just enter into this rest and then we could lose this rest? I think his point is there's something beyond this physical, visual, visible representation of rest. Here's the reality, nothing has changed. I mean, nothing has changed from this point. Fast forward now thousands of years to today, and nothing has changed. The world is a restless place. Because of sin, rebellion, and unbelief, there is nothing but restlessness all around. In our own hearts, if you stop for a moment from the busyness of life and think about this, hopefully you can feel this restlessness in your own heart. Always rushing on to the next thing. Something to feel good by. Whether it's sex, power, influence, comfort, ease of life, money, time. Always rushing on to the next thing. Always looking... to fix something so that we can have some rest, so that our life, our minds can be put to ease. Peacefulness. As we're all addicts looking for our next fix. Have you ever seen someone struggling with heroin? Have you ever walked next to someone struggling with heroin? I remember being served in a restaurant by someone. that I, I, I was like, well, what's going on? And then later I realized, because actually I knew this person, later I realized that they were addicted to heroin. And what was happening was the effects of heroin in their life. They, they were agitated, anxious, a restlessness, like a, like a nervousness, like on edge. And so we we're restless because we're between two places. For those you are followers of Jesus Christ, you are between two places. Belief that we are on our own to secure the life we want. And belief that we are God's people washed in the blood, secure to live the life He wants. And we're in between this place where majority of the people around us believe that they're on their own to secure the life they want. But we know God has said something different. But yet our lives still want to look that way. We still, like Adam and Eve in the garden, believe we're on our own often to secure the life that we want. And this evil desires inside of us produce this restlessness. Indeed, according to Hebrews, it produces this inability to enter into God's rest. I, I hope, I pray that you're tired from that fight. I pray that there's a sense of like, I just don't want to do this. This is hard. Listen, if you're not tired from this fight between belief and faithfulness to God against the fight between that and unbelief and unfaithfulness to God, if you're not tired from that fight, there's a good chance you're not a follower of Jesus. This is the restlessness that was going on in the wilderness generation that is shown to us in a very visible form where their their unbelief results in you cannot enter into God's rest. So what is God's rest? Rest. A place where we can lay our heads in peace. A place where our hearts can be at ease. A place where, a place where the war for your soul ceases. A place where the temptation to look away from your joy in God is gone. Like that's ultimate rest. But the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The first thing we need to see here is strive to enter God's rest. The exhortation here to strive to enter God's rest. And we'll flesh this out what this looks like in the next couple minutes. But strive to enter God's rest. It's not a, hey, you, you probably should try to strive to enter God's rest. No, it's a command. It's, it's not an encouragement. It's a command. Do this. Do this thing. Matter of fact, do this lest you fall by some sort of disobedience that's akin to that generation in the wilderness who God said, go die off and I will let those of your offspring dwell in my restfulness. The idea of striving here. We talked about this in the series already, but back to the idea of effort and our responsibility, that it's God's grace in us, but nevertheless, we are told to fight with effort, to strive to enter. Here is the idea. We are to take great pains to enter this resting place. Listen, if you're not striving to enter God's rest then I think there's good reason to believe that you've not tasted salvation. If you're not striving to enter the restfulness that comes from God's saving grace, then maybe you've not tasted salvation. Now, the exhortation here at this point to let us therefore strive to enter that rest, the exhortation presupposes that God's rest is entered by believers and that their lives should be characterized by this zeal and perseverance and faithfulness. It also presupposes that Israel failed to attain God's rest because of unbelief and disobedience. Again, that's verses 1 through 10. And here's this point. In light of the wilderness generation's failure, failure to believe rightly and then act rightly, In light of that failure, if we do not fear God and take notice that the promise of God's rest currently stands, that it's still available, then we will miss out on this rest. That's his point. In light of their failure and the fact that the promise to enter God's rest still stands, we will miss out. Listen, this, again, I just want to make sure we don't gloss over this. Well, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Okay, go be a good Christian. No, no, he's saying we must make every effort to enter that rest. How do they enter that rest? Belief and faithfulness. Okay, hang with me there. The next thing we need to see in this passage, again, feeling the weightiness of this is that God's judgment is precise. God's judgment is precise. It's deep, it's accurate, it's precise. He talks about the Word of God. It says that God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart through the Word. It says that God, his idea that God will scrutinize man's heart, the depth of your heart, it says that there is no secret hidden from God's sight. That we are all naked and exposed. All of our sin is exposed before God. That we can hide none of it. Like it's so it's so amazing in my own life and see it in our church as well how much we like Adam and Eve run and hide in our sin we Adam Adam where are you God knew where he was at he was hiding in his shame in his sin right how much we try to run and hide why well, how do we do that we try to justify our sin we try to pretend like it's not there we somehow think that if We look good before other people, that that that's somehow enough. But the Scriptures here tell us that we are helpless before God. And He is the one, ultimately, that we will give an account to. Now, He gives us people, He gives us the church, He gives us elders and such, that we give accounts here to now. And if we believe that we'll give an account to God, then we'll be willing to give accounts here and now to those whom God's given us to care for us. But what he says is that ultimately we will give an account to God. Every thought of unbelief. Every fruiting sinful emotion. Every careless word. Every th- evil thought. Every lustful desire. We will give an account for every word that comes from our mouth. Even the inaccurate words. Or maybe they're just not quite right. Right. We will give an account for these things. Uh, idle chatter. We will give an account for those things. Uh, this is very, very real in, in my mind as I think back over preaching here for eight years. I don't know how many sermons and hours and hours and hours. Uh, you know, we went to Ephesians, right? It was 82 sermons, which is roughly like 84, 85 hours of preaching higher. 90 hours of preaching, Uh, so something like that, right? Uh, And not all of those were mine, uh, but the majority of those were mine. Uh, The average, my average sermon in there was 72 minutes, so there you go. Uh, Anyways, uh, yes, lots of, listen, every word that has come from my mouth, I can go back and re-listen to every word, right? And every word that I said, I will be held accountable for. Same thing for you. Now the author, here's what he's doing. He's using imagery to say God's Word is able to penetrate the deepest recesses of the human personality. The deepest parts of who we are, God will penetrate that and judge it. It's because of the character and power of God's Word Listen, that we should be eager to avoid the disobedience of the past generation and make every effort to enter God's rest. There's different motivations in in living faithfully, and part of a legitimate motivation that we see in the scriptures is this fear of God's judgment. That's a healthy thing. That we would look to the past generation, particularly here, he's talking about the wilderness generation, and we would go, I don't want to be them. I don't want to be there. I don't want to get up to the edge of God's rest and go wander in the wilderness until you die off because of your unbelief and your disobedience. Again, the author uses figurative and compelling imagery to convey the idea that God's Word is able to penetrate far inside of us to the, the most hidden spaces, the spaces that we're not even aware of. The language in the passage here is that he can get into and will get into the closest spaces, and is able to find the most subtle divisions of the human being. Let's pause for a second here. We've make an observation just of our Christian culture in general, but certainly of even of of our church. We in many ways it becomes so lazy when it comes to pursuing holiness. So, so passive when it comes to the necessarily active fight in pursuing holiness. To live in belief and obedience. Listen, we're so content to live in the restlessness because we either are not redeemed and so we don't know any different Or we have learned how to numb or to ignore the restlessness in our lives. Listen, to be exposed to the Word of God and the Scriptures is to be examined fully by God Himself and therefore answerable to Him. Listen, if if we believed this, let me ask you this question. Do you think you might read your Bible more? You might study the Scriptures more, meditate on them more, memorize them more. Might you listen to sermons with more vigor? (laughs) I had to put that one in there. Might you get better rest on Saturday so that you're prepared to worship by hearing His Word on Sundays? Listen, if you've read Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, it's a, it's a passionate warning over and over again against the idea of apostasy. The idea that one could lose their faith. <clears throat> now, now, we, I don't have time to dig into this, we as a church believe that someone who's genuinely been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and the Spirit dwells in them, they will indeed persevere but these warnings of apostasy serve as a motivation to work in that perseverance. And so there is a passionate warning here at this point against apostasy and an exhortation to both fear and to make every effort to enter His rest. That we would fight hard, that we would labor hard, we would go to great pains to, to pursue holiness and so enter God's rest. Now, I hope there's a bit of despair in your heart. <laughs> there should be. There should be a bit of like, whoa, <laughs> that's heavy, preacher. If not, then maybe I didn't do a good job of explaining it or we're both just confused but there should be a bit of like uh, n- what here's the question this is the direction that the passage heads is this question to whom should we turn because you and I can't do that right like we're not going to do that perfectly but that doesn't mean we aren't to try. It doesn't mean we're not to go to great pains. It doesn't mean we're supposed to spend every ounce of our being pursuing holiness to, in order to enter God's rest. Yes, we're to do that. That doesn't get alleviated for any reason. That is still our battle to fight, our war to rage, uh, wage. It's our responsibility and our effort and all of those things, right? It's God working in us, but it's our working. we have to make the decision to go do the effort. But to whom should we turn? Where do we turn in this situation? Listen, on the sure basis, sure basis of Jesus' high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, we are urged to approach the throne of grace with boldness, in order to receive grace and mercy. Read verse 14 and 15 with me. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." I would put money on it that if you're familiar with this passage, you're familiar with this passage outside of the context of what we just talked about. I mean, you go read that passage, you're like, wow, I just feel really good. This is awesome. I mean, praise God, He's going he's to empathize with my weaknesses. But what's the context? Strive hard to enter God's rest. That's the context. Make every effort. Make every effort. But it's like the author of Hebrews knows the plight of man. He knows that just like the wilderness generation, you're going to struggle with unbelief too. And he gives us two exhortations here. The first one is this. Hold fast to Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God. Don't hold fast to Jesus, the historical character. Don't hold fast to Jesus, the God of your mama. Hold fast to Jesus, the Son of God. Y'all could have laughed a little bit more on that one. Gosh. That wasn't in my script, for the record. That was on the fly. I'm trying to give myself some credit here. Remember, I'm not the funny preacher. You get the funny preacher for the next few weeks. Hold fast to Jesus, the Son of God. So here's what happened. Okay, follow me here. After being told... Listen to the, Hebrew, the, the flow of the passage. After being told about the penetrating power of the Word of God and the fact that we are exposed and helpless, we are now told, if you are aware of the fearful prospect of judgment, then on the sure basis of Jesus' high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your confession. To the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, here's why I started where we started, and why you have to understand this passage in its context is this the more desperate our situation is before the all-seeing eye of God, the more wonderful His provision for our needs will be. The less desperate. You are before the all-seeing eye of God, which means the more you're clinging to your own righteousness or your own ability to hide your sin, the less glorious His provision will seem to you. He says we have a great high priest. A great high... This is not just... like He's not just saying, oh... Jesus is wonderful. He's saying Jesus is the great. He's saying he's a different kind of priest. He's a different high priest. Completely, he's great compared. He's in a different category from that of the line of Aaron. He belongs to a different priesthood. And thus, his heavenly status and access to God is unique. The idea of greatness in this passage is expressed in the idea of his transcendence. His transcendence. None of the other priests had this measure of transcendence. They didn't have transcendence at all. His transcendence is expressed here when he says that Jesus has, quote, passed through the heavens into the presence of God. So it's not just the priest pass through the curtain into the presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the sacrifice would be made. Jesus passes through the heavens into the presence of God. Not just for momentary dwelling, but for eternal enjoyment. That's what he means by this great high priest. Know the priest has done this. And if we are going to run from sin, right? We're going to not be the wilderness generation. And we're going to enter God's rest. He says this, we must have full commitment that Jesus is the majestic, divine Son of God. Jesus is the high priest who strived and did enter that rest. Here's the point. Look at the context. The wilderness generation that did not persevere in holiness, only the Son of God could do that. Listen, as one writer said, he was tested to the very limit. His shameful death but he did not sin. That's the divine Son of God. And if we confess that he is the Son of God, and that he fought the fight against sin and entered God's rest, then in our fight, this is part of where he's driving to, hear me, then in our fight, if this is true of Jesus, the Son of God, then in our fight, we can know that He is a gracious help, particularly because of His empathy. That He can empathize with us. This is important. Jesus is able to empathize. Now, here, the the idea of empathize. Like, it's different than sympathize. Sympathize is, you know, I, I, I... you know, I, I kind of feel like understanding what like I, I can feel your pain. Empathize is like I'm in your pain. It's like this. Empathize is like this. It's similar to a mother's feeling for her children or a brother's feeling for another. But this is the difference. This feeling, this sharing of. Feeling includes the element of active help towards those who suffer. An active help towards those who suffer. So he knows exactly the feeling. He has felt it. But not just, oh, you know, I, I feel your pain. But no, I feel your pain, and I'm active in helping you with it. Now, we ask this question. When he says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. What weaknesses is he talking about here? Because I guarantee that many of us have read this passage and have understood it or interpreted it as a general weakness. So I am just, I'm weak and you know, this area and I, I just need God's help to, you know, to go to work today because it's just wearing on me and I'm a weak person. Now, I, I think there's, there's room for that in the scriptures, but that's not his point here. That's not the definition of weakness in this context here. That's not what he's talking about. This passage is not about general weaknesses, like physical weaknesses or social weaknesses. Instead, moral weakness Is what's in view in this passage. That's the context. It's the idea of moral weakness. The fact, the idea that we could live this faithful, believing life that the wilderness generation did not live, that we are weak to do that. That's his point. The weakness we have when it comes to fighting against this unbelief and sin that would keep us from God's rest. That's his point. Listen, the greater you understand your weakness in the fight against sin, the more you will draw near to Jesus who empathizes with your weakness. This is our great High priest. He helps those who are helpless. Those who are impoverished in their sin, who are impoverished in their ability to save themselves, who are impoverished in their ability to live perfectly because we're weak. One author said this. The sympathy of Christ, the exalted high priest, is not simply the compassion of one who regards suffering from without, but the feeling of one who enters into the suffering and makes it his own. That is our great high priest. And we're told if we're going to be this believing generation, that enters into God's rest, that we must hold fast, we must cling to, we must be reminded of, we must turn to, in those mundane, spontaneous moments, what are we clinging to? We cling to Jesus, the Son of God. That He's this great transcendent High Priest who passed from this earth into the heavens to sit next to the throne, or sit on the throne To be our mediator before God. The one who did not succumb to sin. The one who knows and understands our weakness when it comes to fighting against unbelief. The second exhortation in this passage is this. Draw near to God in persistence should be an in persistent and confident prayer draw near to god in persistent and confident prayer hebrews 4:16 hebrews 4:16 it says this let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Real quick, before we press through this, help in time of need. What do you think the need is in this passage, given its context? The, the great desperate need we have when it comes to fighting against sin so that we would enter into the rest of God. That is our great need. Now, is there help from God and grace and such for when it comes to times of just needing to know the right words to say when someone is experiencing brokenness or the need to uh, know how to be called? You know, there, there's, Yes, that's true too, but that's not what's in view in this passage. In this passage, find grace to help in time of need is your great need When it comes to fighting the battle of right belief against sin. So with that in mind, let's move through this passage. Listen, grace-driven, word-responsive prayer is an act of drawing near to God. We talked about that a little bit last week. That prayer is not just simply talking to God. Prayer is a physical act that moves our hearts towards God. And remember, again, the weakness is the same idea as this need, this moral need, this ability to fight against immorality. And it's this restless fight about the sin that dwells inside us and keeps us away from God. That's this fight that we're waging war against. And we're exhorted here that if we are to be the people who live in right belief and not rebellion those who live understanding the fearful judgment of God, if we're going to then enter into God's rest, he says this, you must persist in confident prayer. You must persist in confident prayer. Again, this is not a metaphorical drawing near. It's a definite act. It's one that is sure and real. As we come closer to God, our hearts, our minds, through Christ's high priestly mediation in His death and exaltation, because of His work in mediating for us, we're able to draw near our hearts and our minds move closer to God. Listen, based on Jesus' high priestly work, that, li- that leads, that has led to an opening of the heavenly sanctuary for men and women and a new way. That's how, that's why we draw near to God. The new way, as opposed to the Old Testament way, is a direct approach to God for all His redeemed children. And that direct approach to God is the regular expression of drawing near. Someone who understands, I have a direct approach to God because of the high priestly mediation of Jesus. More on that in a second. One who understands that is one who will draw near to God. So with that in mind, why would we draw near? Why would you draw near to God? Why? Why would you and I want to draw near to God? What's the purpose? What's the motivation? Listen, the motivation to draw near to God is two things. It's because he sits on the throne of grace, and you and I need that grace. See, lots of Christians believe that Jesus sits on the throne of grace, that's grace, that's great, but the problem is we don't think we need that grace. That's part of the whole point of this passage, is that Jesus sits on the throne of grace, and you and I desperately need it. Listen, the author is telling us that the place of God's presence is the place where grace is given to his people. It's the place of God's presence from which grace is given to his people. Grace for what? We'll get there in a second. God is said to be enthroned upon, let me reach you back to the Old Testament and go back and read, Passages like Psalm 80, Psalm 99, that God is said to be enthroned upon the cherubim, which were placed on the Ark of the Covenant in the side of the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle and later on the temple where sacrifices were offered. The idea of the Ark, right, you have the Ark here, you got the law inside of it, and on top you have this lid. Called the mercy seat, and you have these cherubim on top, and the the, the visual represent the, the visible representation for the people of God was that God is looking down at his people, and the law is here, and that blood had to be spilt where? On the mercy seat, so that when God would look down at his people and the law, which is his character, it's who he is, it's his perfection, his holiness that he would see his people and see his character and the disparage between the two, he would see that through the blood of the sacrifice. So God is said to be enthroned upon these cherubim looking down. And that the idea of this, this heavenly throne where God looks down through to His people, the the earthly counterpart, if you will, is the mercy seat on this ark. And the heavenly throne where Jesus, the true high priest, has ministered the source of God's gracious, saving assistance in our need of rescue is seen in that picture. Jesus sits on this throne as this great high priest. And he sits and... What is he ministering to? What is he mediating between? He's the one, the high priest... So in the Old Testament, right, they walk in, they make sacrifice, they lay it on to the mercy seat, and God sees this Jesus as the high priest comes in, and he lays the blood on our hearts. And he stands in this earthly, or this heavenly sanctuary where God dwells, and he mediates between God and us, saying, that's my blood on them. Listen, in the Old Testament, only the high priest could approach the mercy seat. Only the high priest could walk in. And even that, right, was questionable and dangerous. But what Israel could never enjoy, Jesus has achieved for all believers. And that is immediate access to God and freedom to draw near to Him continually. That we, through Christ, get to draw near to God in constant, confident prayer. Listen, the means by which we persevere in righteousness into the resting place of God is by dwelling upon God's mercy and His grace. If we're to be this generation that doesn't live in unbelief and perseveres instead in belief into God's resting place, we must dwell closely to God seeing His grace and mercy. What do we find at the throne? Why would we draw near to God in persistent and confident prayer? Why should we have a robust private prayer life? What does it say about you and the realness of your faith when in that spontaneous moment of unrighteousness your response is, oh, I'm going to run to the throne of grace instead of I'm going to run and hide or I'm going to run and justify or I'm going to run and keep doing this and ignore it. I'm going to cherish this iniquity in my heart. What does it say when in that moment the Spirit reveals I am sinning? The Word reveals I am not living in right belief and faithfulness to God, and and then my heart runs to the throne of grace. Why is it that your private prayer life reveals who you really are? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you understand your weakness in the fight against sin, you see His strength in the fight against sin, and you see the glory of resting in God's place. And if you see those three things, therefore you know, you know that you need mercy and grace, and you know that He gives it bountifully to His children because of Jesus. You know that. He says mercy and grace to help in time of need. Again, what is our need? What is our weakness? It's our struggle in unbelief and subsequent sin. And with that present, we can never enter God's rest. And in our inner man, there will only be restlessness. But we fight against unbelief, we fight against this weakness. But what do we do to find aid? Understanding that that we're just incapable of doing that in a way that's necessary to honor God. What do we do to find aid in our striving to enter this rest? What is it that we need in order to have right belief and righteous lives? Is it to have more lists of do's and don'ts? Those are helpful, but is that what's going to get us there? It's two things, he says. Hold fast to your confession that Jesus is the almighty son of God. And two, mercy and grace. That's what you need. When you're fighting in that weakness, what do you need to be reminded of? Jesus is the son of God, and I need mercy, and I need Grace. What, what's mercy and grace here represent? Mercy. So what is it? I, when I go to the throne, I draw near to God, recognizing my weakness, recognizing His sure judgment, recognizing the value and the glory of resting in Him, fighting against sin and helping my unbelief. What am I reminded? What's the idea of mercy? It's assurance that past sin has been paid for and dealt with. You know someone that runs quickly to God in repentance and faith? One who's not hesitant or well well, let me just make sure that I didn't sin. You know, give me time to work on that make sure. But one who goes, you know, probably so? Let me pray through that. Think about that. The person that does that is the person who knows there is more mercy than they could ever need. That assurance that their past sin has been dealt with. That person runs to repentance because of their faith in the mercy of God. And they run quickly. And what's this grace? Grace for what? Inner strengthening to endure testing. Testing. The strength to do this. Both come through the heavenly high priest who, has, who was himself tested. And these, mercy and grace, are generously given for timely assistance. Listen, God's voice has said these words. I mean, this, this passage, this chapter 4, and now we in prayer are told to respond to His voice by drawing near. But listen, we'll only do that. You'll only respond in drawing near to Him if you have faith that mercy is granted for our sin through the blood of Jesus that has been dealt with. You'll only do it if you have faith that grace is freely given at the throne. The grace to abandon our, our idolatrous ways and to enter into God's rest. It's it's in that faith right there. It's It's in that walk with God, where you're drawing near to Him, going, I can't do this my own. I am weak, and your judgment is sure. I'm gonna strive hard, but I know I'm gonna fail. And I draw near to the throne of grace. Listen, when and I draw near God drawing me near to the throne of grace, to to the throne where his mercy is given, that's where rest is right now. That's where rest is right now. It's not in perfect circumstances. It's not even in sinless perfection. Right now, rest is found at the throne of grace. Where mercy reminds us of forgiveness for our sins because Jesus paid the price. And where grace is found for perseverance and obedience to the Lord. That is where our measure of rest is experienced right now. Listen, as the rest of the world is restless, we can have rest by drawing near to God because that's where rest is. That's where rest is. Now that rest is ultimately pointing to an eternal reality. Listen, our ability to draw near to the throne of grace right now in the midst of this restless place through the blood of Jesus reminds us. Listen, reminds us. So when you, recognizing our weakness in our faithful walking with the Lord... We recognize our weakness and we run to the throne of grace and the place of mercy every time. And we've, as we experience God's rest there, every time we should be reminded, we should be reminded that one day we won't have to draw near in the same way to this throne of grace, because we will dwell eternally near the throne of grace. We won't drift away from it. We won't go another place. We'll be there, next to the throne of grace, for all of eternity. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you. Our hearts wander so much. Father, we look for hope in our sinfulness, by hiding it, by justifying it, by ignoring it, by not searching our hearts, ourselves, by not letting the Word penetrate us, by thinking that, that we, can, we can hide. Instead, we we're reminded this morning that we're we are exposed, that we cannot hide any of it. It's all open before you. We are a book that you have read. We're a book that you have memorized, that you can see and read between the lines. You know the very depths of our hearts. And yet we're told to strive to enter your rest. Father, we know this morning from this passage that we cannot enter that rest apart from the high priestly work of your son Jesus where he died for our sins. He paid the price. And as our great high priest has covered our hearts with his blood. And because of that, we are told here that we get to and that we must draw near to the throne of grace and mercy where we're reminded of the blood and we're reminded and receive the grace needed to persevere thank you for your kindness in rescuing us, for those who are your children covered by your blood. Father, may you graciously remind us of these things this morning. For in your son's name we pray, amen, amen. Church, we're going to in a very timely sense here, um, partake in communion this morning, uh, Lord's Supper, uh, to remind you of some warnings that Paul gives us, um, that the Lord's Supper or communion is for those who are walking in, re- in repentance and faith. So what I mean by that is that if you're not sure if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that you're not, probably not walking in repentance and faith. Um, But also, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and there is sin in your heart that you are harboring, that you are cherishing, that you're not wanting to repent for, that you should not partake as well. Paul says that you drink judgment upon yourself in either of those cases. So, But I would encourage you there, if you have sin that you're harboring in your heart, not wanting to repent, I pray that you would repent, that you would see the glory of the cross And the broken body of Jesus and the spilt blood. And that that would move your heart to see the graciousness and the mercy of God. And that that would move your heart to repentance and faith. And same, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that you would see that there is grace for you. There is mercy for you at the cross. Because Jesus died for your sin and for mine.